Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat, a show where I interview business executives, talent development professionals, and thought leaders to find out what has been successful and challenging in the world of talent development. My objective is to share ideas, valuable lessons, tools, advice, and trends. My hope is that all of this will ultimately help you, the listener, expand your knowledge, grow your career, and accelerate your success as a talent development professional. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I am so excited that you're joining me today. I have a great interview for you with Professor Jay Conger. And Jay is one of the world's experts on leadership. You can see him quoted in the Wall Street Journal and other business periodicals analyzing people and trends in the executive suite and in the boardroom. He's a senior research scientist at the USC Marshall School Center for Effective Organization as well as the Henry Kravis Chaired Professor of Leadership Studies at Claremont McKenna College in Los Angeles. In his career, Jay has authored over 100 articles and 15 books on topics ranging from leadership, organizational change, and manager development. He's one of a handful of authors who have published multiple articles in the Harvard Business Review, and his most recent book is The High Potentials Advantage, which is what we'll be talking about today. Jay has taught at... Uh, Harvard Business School, INSEAD, London School of Business, McGill, University of Southern California, where I did my MBA some 10 years ago, and been featured in all kinds of different publications and periodicals. And now, most importantly, Jay has been featured on this podcast. Jay, welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. Thank you, Andy. You've done a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I like busy. I get bored easily. Yeah, there you go. You got a lot of books behind you. My joke was that, you know, are they all yours? But I guess you do a lot of research. You probably read other people's things as well. This is really cool that, you know, I, like I said, I did my MBA at USC Marshall School of Business back in 2005 to 2008. I know you taught there before that and you're back there now teaching in the executive education program. And uh, of course, the USC Marshall Executive Education Program is our premier sponsor for the Talent Development Think Tank, which is coming up soon. So we're excited for that affiliation. And uh, also cool because you and I met, we crossed paths at another conference, uh, what did we figure, about three years ago at uh, Ian Ziskin and Lacey's EXHR event? You were speaking there. Yeah, we had a great conversation. Yeah, we did. We talked a lot about personal development and mindfulness and meditation and just uh, you know getting the most out of life. And it uh, seems like we've both still been doing that since then. So. Speaking of that, I know I introduced you, you know, listed a lot of things there, but I'd love for you to fill in some gaps and maybe tell us a little bit more about where you came from and how you got to where you are today. Uh, happy to. 
So uh, I became interested in the topic of potential at the age of four. And uh, that was a little early for most people. But at the age of four, I fractured my skull. Okay. And uh, had a very close brush with life and death. And I woke up at an operating table. And then I passed out. And then I next woke up at a, um, in a hospital bed. And a doctor came in looking very fatherly with dark frame glasses and a lab coat. And he said, Jay, I have some bad news for you don't ever do what you just did, because if you do that again, you'll die. And I was four years old. And and like most kids, you know, I was having a great time in life. And I fractured my skull from bed hopping. And you remember on beds? Well, my brother and sister and I had a little variation where you could go falling backwards. And I fell backwards into a wood headboard. So at age four, I, I started grappling with an existential issue that you're not supposed to, which is what am I going to do with my life? Oh my God, it's so potentially frail. You know, I could potentially disappear. Now, the problem with a four-year-old is they have no idea what they're going to do. Does that mean go out and play more often? Does it mean feel like dinosaurs, spend more time trying to dig up dinosaur bones, whatever it was? And then there was a fortunate coincidence. My dad, who worked in the U.S. State Department, became the head of uh, protocol. And protocol is the office that basically handles all foreign dignitaries who come to America. And uh, while he was a career officer, he was the guy in charge of hosting every famous world leader uh, who came to America in the 1960s and 70s. And he would come home and tell us about these people. And uh, at age 10, I said, oh, my gosh, that's how I'm going to realize my potential. I'll be a leader. I'll, I'll try to be somebody uh, who goes out and, and shapes the world. And so at 10, I decided to go into politics. And I was literally going to be a political leader. I got very involved in politics. But that was a little bit later in life. But throughout most of my teen years, I held a lot of different leadership offices. I became a big fan of leadership, and I, I felt the only way to learn it was just to do it. High school leadership, as you know, is very different from real real leadership, but I learned a lot. Right. And then I got very involved in politics. I got too involved because I, I got disillusioned. I realized a lot of politics was not about leadership. It was about the pleasure of power. It was about the pleasure of public adoration. So by my early 20s, I kind of moved away from politics. Like a lot of young people, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, particularly now that I'd just given up politics as a career. And I happened to uh, sit in on an MBA class. And like you, I said, oh, this is really interesting. And so I got an MBA and I went to work for, at the time, the largest solar cell manufacturer in the world at the first wave of solar. Uh, And I ran international marketing for them. And I, I was learning about leadership firsthand as a line leader and how challenging it was to lead people. I worked with a very international group. And so I, I've always been interested in other cultures, but I learned the nuances and challenges of working across cultures. I had taken a course in my MBA program called Group Dynamics, and I vowed to myself that one day I'd go back and get a doctorate and become a teacher. And so rather than waiting for 20 more years, After five years, I decided to go and get a doctorate. And, you know, I focused in on what I'd always loved, leadership. So that's how I got where I am today. I think early on, I could see that I had a lot of ability to teach and coach people. And I think I'm fairly unusual. There are not many professors in my world who actually were line leaders. Yeah. Most most of had a pure academic career. So I tend to be unusual in this since I'm always thinking about 
how will this work in real life? Yeah, I think that's so important. You know, much like in organizations, uh, whenever I come across people in HR or talent development who spent time in the business or at least have done some rotations out in the field, I feel like they have so much more perspective and maybe empathy for the people they're dealing with. And same thing, you're right. It, it seemed like when I went through, especially doing my MBA, there are a number of professors who grew up in academia and certainly they're very knowledgeable about the subjects, but maybe don't have as much you know, practical experience or, or empathy for what people are really dealing with in business unless they actually worked in the business like you did. Yeah, and it makes you realize, one, how hard the job is of leading. Number two, it helps you realize that it's not for everybody. There are a lot of people who really don't want to be leaders. Mm -hmm. And then I think number three, I learned, which is most leaders are made, but you have to have a drive. If you don't have the drive, it's pretty hard to become an effective leader. Yeah. And then I became really interested in, well, how do you, how do you help people who want to be leaders actually accelerate their development? So that's really, in some ways, been my kind of research and then my executive education is all focused on how do people become more effective at leading. If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world and things are changing so fast, it's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks, and on to the episode. Most of our listeners of this podcast are in some form of you know, talent development, uh, leadership development, learning and development, trying to find ways to help their people become better leaders. So I know there's probably a lot of ways we could go with this, but you know, at a basic level, how do you help people become better leaders? Great question. Big question. Yeah, so, I know. I'll shrink it down a little bit. Okay. So I do believe that everybody has unique needs. So that's the, one of the big problems with a lot of leadership development programs. They try to cover the waterfront of leadership when actually each person has very specific kind of development needs and very specific kind of drives. So when I'm doing coaching, I'm always kind of analyzing this person as an individual. I'm not even thinking about kind of, all right, here are these five dimensions of leadership that I need to help them cultivate. On the other hand, when you're on the executive ed side and program side, as many of your listeners are, you know, you're driven by these structured called competency models. And uh, the worst I've seen maybe had 60 competencies, which is impossible. But at the other end, you know, three to five. I kind of always go back to there. It's a very simple notion, but I learned through my coaching that each of us has to kind of work through certain basics of leadership. And if we don't work through those basics, we can't get on to the, the more 
in some ways more influential, more powerful aspects. So let me give you a great example. Many managers in their 20s and 30s really are not very effective at delegation. Delegation is really a managerial task. But if you don't learn to delegate by your late 20s and early 30s, you're not going to be able to do most of the leadership tasks. So oftentimes, I have to start with something as fundamental as just delegation. And the worst case, we call that micromanaging. Yep. In the better case, it's somebody who's doing something they're really good at, they love doing, but basically they need to hand it off to the people who work for them so they can be skillful at it. Right. You have to get through these kind of basics. Then you can start working on things which are the, I would argue, the hardest work of leadership, like tackling conflict. 90% of the managers I know, this is one of the biggest stumbling blocks as leaders. They have an aversion to tackling conflict. Most of us do. Most of us want to be liked. But if you're really going to be an effective leader, you have to really be skillful at difficult conversations. And you have to be skillful at holding people accountable. And that's another kind of foundational block in leadership. Then maybe later you can get to the inspiration, the vision, all these kind of the things we associate with leadership. But I always go back, you really have to tackle these basics first before you can get to a lot of the uh, kind of the bigger picture things we associate with leadership. Yeah, so it's interesting what you're saying is, what I'm hearing is one of the biggest pitfalls for managers or people who are moving up trying to become better managers, better leaders, executives, is that they don't learn to delegate and therefore they either become micromanagers or they just get overwhelmed with too many tasks because they're not willing or able to delegate. Or the other challenge is that if they're not delegating, they're not really giving their people enough opportunity to take on new challenges because they keep taking keeping all the tasks for themselves. That's right. And then the other thing is people make the assumption that I've just been promoted and they must want more of what I'm so good at. But actually, half the time, they don't want more of what you're so good at. They want something new that you may not be good at yet, but you need to be good at. And they often won't know what they need you to do. So that's the other challenge in leadership development. Oh, yeah. I would say as I go out and do my work as a consultant and just speak with L&D leaders across big companies everywhere, the number one challenge that comes up again and again is... People doing a really great job getting promoted into a manager role and then not knowing how to be a manager. And they just think that, you know, I'm going to do more of what I did before, but that's not what the company wants. Now they want you to be a manager, but you don't have manager training. That's right. That's right. And, and then when you look at some of the research that's been done in terms of bosses being effective at developing their people, mm-hmm. generally speaking, it shows that time and time again, most bosses are not effective at coaching. So the very people you're supposed to be learning from tend not to be good or skillful at that. And then when you think about the reward structure, when you look at organizations' performance reviews, coaching might be one of the items, but there's no tie to pay. There's really no yeah. promotions. So we really, and it's so funny I'm going to say this, but it's a sink or swim culture, which you know I remember we talked about 30 years ago. I think that culture is still very much alive. And you know, may the best person rise up to... And so there are a few people who really are quick learners and they figure things out. But I feel, always feel it doesn't give an advantage to the people who, who need more guidance. And the other analogy I use is everybody's like a, an athlete. And imagine becoming a world-class athlete without feedback and coaching. Yeah. And that's what's 
happen. Yeah, you rarely see it, right? Even the best athletes have coaches uh, every step of the way. And those coaches, we forget, don't have to be better than that person at the thing that they do. They just have to provide that outside perspective. You know, I always give the example, Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, who's won tons of Super Bowls, possibly the best quarterback of all time. He has like three coaches and none of them can play football better than he can, but they can provide that outside perspective and help him continuously get better. Yes. And I think that's why coaching is really making a kind of inroads because I think people are finally coming to grips with the fact that coaching is really powerful and many bosses don't have the capacity to coach. Yeah. So let's bring some outside help in. And what I also love, you think about it like an Olympian athlete, when's the last time they get coached? Well, after they get the gold medal. And the coach says, hey, you know, Andy, you could have shaved a quarter of a second off if you had X, <laughs> Y, and Z. So I love that idea that, you know, you're never quite there. Yeah. And you can just be pushing your game higher and higher. Yeah, you can always get better. So you were said earlier that you thought great leaders are really made, not born. Mm-hmm. And there's this element where if they're going to become a great leader, they need to learn how to delegate, learn how to coach, learn how to work with their people. And one we already identified that one of the biggest pitfalls is people moving into a manager role, not really being incentivized to do the right coaching and be, do the manager stuff versus other things that they might be doing. And I know a lot of companies have a great co- coaching culture, but there's tons out there that don't. Is the biggest change that needs to be made? Is it getting those managers training on coaching? Is it more about the culture? What do you think is one of the biggest shifts that needs to be made to help them be more effective? Well, I think if you think about the culture as the container, I think the culture is really key. And then out of that is really teaching managers to be effective coaches. And the other thing, having worked with thousands of managers, is they tend to have a very simplistic notion of coaching, which is I'm the expert and I'm going to give you information. And of course, we know that there are areas where that's the right approach, but most of the areas are really through thoughtful questions, helping people through experiments that they're going to run with their behavior. And it's being a sounding board and a feedback source more so than transferring information. So I actually think the two go hand in hand. Culture is the foundation, the holding container. And then coaching is the skill through which you actually allow that culture to take root. Yeah. I mean, it's, coaching at its core is really about asking questions and helping people discover that, that answer, right? And sometimes you give advice, but are you familiar with Michael Bungay-Stanier and his book, The Coaching Habit? No. Okay. I've had him on the podcast before and, and he talks about the advice monster that managers get trapped in. They don't ask enough questions and jump to advice too soon. And then they're not really coaching or really half the time, they're not even really getting to the core issue that people are dealing with. Yeah. And it's because most managers have an action mindset, which is, oh, we need to solve this and let's solve it quickly because we have more things coming down the pike. And if you put that mindset to coaching, that's not a constructive mindset. Mm, yeah. Before we get to your book, one more big question I want to ask, just out of curiosity, we've been talking a lot about leadership. We've also been talking about management. Do you draw a delineation between the two? And if so, how do you define leadership versus management? Because I know a lot of people have opinions out there on that. Yeah, I do draw a distinction. Yep. I don't draw a distinction between managers and leaders. I draw a distinction between the activities, managing versus leading. So you, Andy, could be very effective at doing both. What I would argue is there are going to be times during the day where you need to do really good managing and other times during the day where you need to do effective leading. And so part of being an effective 
executive and manager is figuring out, all right, do I need to be in managing mode here or leading mode? How I draw a distinction? Well, John Cotter, who you probably heard of, he was my thesis advisor when I did my doctorate. And I've always liked Cotter's framework, which is that both have to do with setting direction. But managerially, the direction is about today and the status quo. It's short-term, and it's really built around, are we hitting our short-term goals? Leadership is really about this idea of change, that the world's dynamic. And so it's about this somewhat abstract term called vision. It's thinking ahead, kind of how do we need to prepare ourselves for the next iteration of this organization or for changing clients? And so it has a long time horizon. And as a result, it's strategic. Yeah. Whereas the managing is much more incremental and it's really about improving efficiencies. It's building on today's paradigm. The second dimension is really then how do you get people aligned behind short-term goals, long-term goals? The managing side is using systems. So I give you a budget, Andy, and I'm watching you. And if you spend more in the quarter, I tell you you're out of alignment and get yourself back in alignment. I set parameters around where you can spend that budget. I have targets for you and I watch whether you hit them and they could be weekly, monthly, or quarterly, but they're all about you know, this year. Leadership is really about the relationship and you align people through the power of your relationship. People admire you. Uh, you're very persuasive. You're a world-class communicator. You're somebody they admire and they want to follow. And so you align people through your powerful ability to build really strong, constructive relationships that people deeply value. And then the final dimension is motivating, you know, under managing. We do a good job, Andy, this year. I'm going to pay you a bit more. If you do a super job, I'm going to give you more work, but I'll, I'll throw in a title and you'll say, hey, that's great. Nice. On the leading side, it's really about energy, inspiration, aspirations. It's about the sense of purpose that you're doing something really important and meaningful. And so you get this amazing blend of intrinsic drive, whereas the managing side is a lot more about extrinsic rewards. So that's how I draw a distinction between the two. And I always feel that when you're younger, generally, unless you're an entrepreneur, managing is valued. You're going to get a lot more reinforcement for that. And then as you become really at the mid-levels and higher, leading becomes really important. But often you have not been trained in much leadership and you may not be rewarded for it. Yeah. And I was going to say, both are necessary. You know, sometimes we say we aspire to be these great visionary leaders and think like, oh, managers are bogged down in systems or whatever. That's not as sexy or as exciting. But you need people to manage the strategy and the business today. And you also need visionaries to think about where it's going long term. But if you just have a bunch of visionaries sitting down and sitting around like me, then nothing ever gets done. No, Andy, I've worked with a, with a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. And, you know, half of them. Well, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but it, you know, maybe a quarter get pushed out of their organizations because they're too visionary. Yeah. You know, they burn through the money. They, they hire badly. They do all the managing things badly. And unless they've got a really strong compliment, somebody is really good at managing. So yeah, I'm with you completely. You need this balance. And I think in order to be an effective executive, you need to be able to do both really well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, welcome to my life as a visionary entrepreneur. I'm always like head in the clouds and like, oh, I actually have to, I came up with this idea. I actually have to execute on this. I should probably do that or delegate as I've gotten a lot better at doing as well. I have an assistant and other people that I work with now to help with certain things. 
This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting organizations with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. And we're also proud to be providing tons of great content and inspiration to you and everyone out there during troubled times. You can go to advantageperformance.com to find any of our weekly webinars, insights, white papers, and blogs we've been putting out to help you survive and thrive during challenging times. That website again is advantageperformance.com. And now back to the show. I want to shift a little bit and get to your book, The High Potentials Advantage, uh, which I know has been pretty popular. Tell me a little bit about the impetus for that book and, and what's in there. Yeah, so just about every organization I've worked with in the last 10 years has a high potentials track. And increasingly, when I do ex- executive ed for my clients, in most of the rooms where I'm working, they're high potential people. So that distinction has become really important. And a friend of mine, Alan Church, who's at PepsiCo, who runs all of their talent assessment, Alan and I were talking about this issue and we said, hey, we should, we should write a book. And we should write a book for people who aspire to be high potentials and take our combined experiences. So I've, I've worked across 500 different organizations. Alan has had really amazing depth for a couple decades in one company that's known as an academy company. It produces a lot of leadership talent. And so we were really trying to figure out what's the Rosetta Stone for high potentials. What are the attributes that over a career you would need to develop in order to successfully navigate? And so the book is really positioned for anybody who wants to be high potential, but also it's for people in the talent development space who who are thinking about you know, well, what are the distinguishing attributes? Most organizations have a kind of competency model of hypos, but we don't buy into all of those, largely because we've seen so many individuals and I've seen so many individuals across different organizations and we were looking for universals. Well, let's go down that talent development road then. You talked about the distinguishing attributes of a good hypo program and how to help those managers move along to become more high potential or become executives, what are some of those attributes? Yeah, so we'll start with the first one. We call it situation sensing the boss. And that, that's foundational. If you're not good at reading your boss, you're in trouble because your boss is the primary decision maker as to whether you have potential. What we found is that over our, our work that there are two dimensions you have to think about. The first is you have to think about your boss's potential. So the problem is most people think about their potential. But you have to really think about your boss because you're, you are an extension of your boss's potential. If your boss is really doing well, she will bring you along. So right away, the people are really long-term high potentials. They have figured out what their boss has to achieve this year. And they've figured it out in terms of the two or three outcomes that the boss themselves are being measured on. So they're, they're thinking way beyond themselves. And they are making certain they are playing a big role in helping their boss achieve those. And by the way, some bosses can't even tell you what those are. 
which is a real paradox because then you have to figure it out. But generally speaking, I think in terms of two things, that there are core tasks that everybody has to do given their job. And then there are a few what are called signature tasks. So if you can achieve at a high level those two or three signature tasks for the year, you and your boss stand out. Number two, the people who really become long-term high potentials are thinking about their work at the level of their boss and their boss's boss. They're not thinking about their work at their level. The other thing which we found very consistently is that people who took extraordinary initiatives and turned them into realities really stood out. And these were initiatives that nobody asked for, but they tended to solve a problem, an important problem. So in one organization, a large professional services firm, I was interviewing partners and I said, you know, describe your high potential leaders. And at a certain point I said, oh my gosh, all these people share one thing in common. They've all identified a problem. They all created an initiative that tackled that problem and they stayed with it to create a solution that was enduring. And that brought them visibility way beyond their peers. And by the way, they all did it with good intentions. They weren't yeah. intending to stand out. They were really intending to solve. They wanted to solve a problem, right? And they took initiative and said, I'm going to go solve this problem for the best of the organization or whatever, the benefit of the organization. And then they ended up standing out for that or being rewarded for that. Yeah. So this is what situation sensing the boss is really about. And again, I, I keep coming back to this idea of initiative. If, you, if you're in HR and you really want to stand out as a high potential leader in, in talent or HR, start thinking about, all right, what extraordinary initiatives can I show? And so I'll, I'll kind of close this dimension with a story of Vineet, who's somebody we looked at who worked in India. He ran marketing and sales for a Swiss medical products company. He was invited to the U.S. for a marketing conference. It was a global conference. About 500 people flew to New York from all over the world. And Vineet stayed an extra week after the conference. So the conference is about two days. He stayed for five more days. And what he did each day is he, he had heard that the U.S. sales organization was probably the best in the world. So every morning he got on sales calls and he did sales calls with the people who were identified as the best salespeople. And literally from morning to night, he did sales calls with these individuals. And he took notes, he interviewed them, and he did it for five days. And then he gets on the plane and flies back to Delhi. And during the 20-hour flight, he begins putting together all of his notes. He creates this draft of a sales training program for India. He creates this draft of a strategic plan for sales and marketing for India. He's like a good leader, though. He comes back, he shares what he's found, and he says, what do you all think of this? So he doesn't say, let's implement this. Yeah, he doesn't say, Here, here's the answer. So he gets his whole team engaged, and we do the entire sales and marketing infrastructure of India. Wow. And that will propel India quite a number of notches up in the globe. Now, by the way, 500 people came to that two-day conference. Vineet was the only one who took advantage of the opportunity to learn. Yeah, which is interesting. And it goes right back to what you were talking about before, about that balance between you know, short-term manager and long-term visionary. Most people thought, probably finished that conference like many people do and thought, I need to get on my email, get on that plane, get back to work on the things that my boss, is, my manager assigned to me. And Vineet is looking long-term 
how can I take advantage of this situation to build something strategic and make things easier for my bosses? Just like you talked about earlier, the importance of being able to, to read your boss, basically like step in and take on those strategic tasks to help your boss achieve his or her goals and help you both stand out as being more visionary, taking initiative, jumping in strategic versus you also probably got to get your stuff done today, right? There's a balance. Yeah, very much so. But I think most people are not thinking at that level of initiative. Mm, Yeah. So when you think about people in talent development that are listening to this and and thinking, okay, yeah, I would love to have some Vanites in my organization who take initiative and come and put together training programs. I hope they'll check in with me, right? (laughs) As As they do this. Are there some ways that you found to help get people in organizations thinking more like this? I mean, you're not going to get everybody thinking like this, but maybe to get some more managers or leaders thinking more like this. Yeah. So one is to tell stories about your Vinites. And it goes back to something, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the Heath Brothers, who wrote a great book called Switch. And they said, find the bright spots. So find the individuals in your organization who are doing what you want the rest of the organization to do. And highlight them as stories and just keep telling those stories. The other thing would be for senior leaders to identify areas for initiative. Say, you know, hey, we don't have anybody dedicated to solving this particular issue, but here's an area where we we really need some initiative. Kind of throwing a spotlight on areas where there might be opportunity. You also, also always have in an organization entrepreneurial people and really giving them opportunities, finding, encouraging them to be more entrepreneurial. And then I think for bosses, which is also with entrepreneurs in an organization, is getting some of the bureaucracy out of their way so they don't get frustrated. Yeah. And that's awesome. And I think most managers would probably really appreciate it if their people are stepping up, helping them get their things done. Although in my experience, one pitfall I feel like might come up, and tell me if you've seen this, is people with more of a, a scarcity mindset, the micromanagers, whoever start to get a little fear around that. If my people are starting to do my job, then that means they can do it for me and I'm going to lose my job. How do we deal with that? I've seen that. I've seen that. Yeah. Well, you can do it. Ah, I have. There's a great story in our book about somebody who, who faced that dilemma. And what he did is his boss, she was very much of a micromanager and you know basically insecure. And what he knew was that the senior team was demanding she do something about an issue, but she didn't really have competence in that area. So the individual we looked at, he said, hey, let me uh, take this off your plate. Mm. And he, he took it off her plate and he did it and he fixed it big time. And then he knew that probably she would claim most of the credit. Uh, and so he, you know, he said, okay, I'll take it off her plate and I'll let her claim some more credit than she probably deserves. But people knew him and they knew him well and they watched what he did. And so while she claimed a lot of credit, uh, her peers knew that actually this individual had done most of the work. But it was, it was a great way to work around somebody. And then she got such good accolades for it that she was grateful to him. Right. And then gave him more latitude. That's cool. So it pays off for him. Yeah, but again, it's this kind of under the radar. Right. It can be a little, little tricky sometimes. Okay, let's speak directly to our HR leaders who are listening that they want to find ways to accelerate their careers, to move up and you know become that chief learning officer, chief HR officer, whatever it is. What 
specific advice would you have for them? Is it similar to what you already talked about? Is there anything else they could be doing? Yeah. So I'll give you a great story. It's in the book also, but it's a really wonderful story. Uh, a lady named Debbie Reed. Debbie Reed actually was an engineer. She went to work for a company called Sempra Energy, uh, which is a company that has utilities, but also other, other energy-related businesses. And Sempra is very good. They rotate their high potentials uh, through different HR, well, through different functions. And she was rotated into human resources. And she had to prepare comp plans for the executive team. And right away, she realized she didn't know enough about finance. But she realized that finance was basically the currency of the executive suite. And that all these comp plans were based around the financial performance of her firm. Debbie was very ambitious. She wanted to be the, the president of one of the utilities. And so she said, oh, my gosh, I don't even have a shot at a higher level position if I don't get finance under my belt. So she reached out to the division controller and asked him if he would be willing to tutor her in finance, which he did. And they would literally meet several times a week. And she would be tutored. And then he said, you know, Debbie, you've learned a lot. I think you should now get some tutoring from our CFO. So the CFO took her on and he said, Debbie, we have these things called 10K reports, 10Q reports. And I'm going to give you, each time they come out, I'm going to give you one. I expect you to go through the whole thing. And then I'm going to ask you a lot of tough questions. I'm going to grill you. And uh, so she's doing this. And then simultaneously, she's starting to take coursework on the outside on finance. She'll do this for quite a number of years, and that will lead her to be president of the utility. She just retired last year as CEO of the entire organization. Wow. And what I like about Debbie is you got to remember that Debbie's this young engineer. She's probably in her late 20s. She's in this human resources job. She realizes that finance is one of the most important functional areas if you want to run this company, if you want to be at the top. And she's not waiting for anybody to give her that feedback. She's finding mentors and she's, she's not just finding mentors, you know, meet once a month. It's like weekly. Right. And then she's going on the outside. So my advice to HR folks who really want to get up there is one, first of all, really understand finance. I think yeah. it was onto something. I think Finance is, fortunately or unfortunately, the language of corporations, and you have to be versatile. Number two, one of the biggest things, which we've talked about for a long time, but I don't think it's been resolved, which is you have to get yourself thrown into projects and initiatives that have a very important strategic emphasis so that you move from just being operational in HR to really understanding the business strategy. I would also say find an executive who is outside of the HR function, who, who might be game to mentor you and really help you understand the business. And any opportunity you can get to be on teams where you have to look at the enterprise or you have to look at an issue through the lens of another function, get yourself on those teams. Yeah. I think one of the biggest dilemmas with, with a, quite a number of the human resources role is you get pinned as a specialist. Mm. which you might wish to be. I mean, you may want to be the best in compensation or the best in workforce engagement or the best in leadership development. But if you really want those executive roles, you, you have to move. You have to have a broader experience set. 
Yeah, you've got to get that outside experience, that business experience and understand the financials. And that's advice we've heard time and time again on this podcast. And I've talked about it that, you know, if you want to be seen as a partner to the business, you've got to understand the strategy and the finances and the business. And if you want to move into those executive roles, then I mean, I think understanding people is underrated is becoming more and more important. You know, the, the finance person that wants to be the CEO needs to understand the people dynamics. Yes. But if you're in HR and you think you get the people side, you got to go understand, figure out how to understand finance and learn a lot more about that if you want to get into that executive role. So I think that's it's great advice. It really makes sense. Yeah. The other thing, you know, it's interesting, Andy, because Ed Lawler and I, both Ed Lawler, as you may know, has been in this human resources field for decades. We looked at corporate boards and we looked at kind of CHROs and corporate boards and you, you start to realize they play a very small role. They've kind of been relegated to succession and then comp. And one of the things which we felt really strongly is that many CHROs have not cultivated enough of this kind of executive presence. Um, they really have not spent a lot, enough time in cultivating being a really strong communicator. And then this larger issue of not having an enterprise view. And I think what we really learned was that boards totally underappreciate human capital issues. And I think a lot of what a great CHRO is doing is they're persuading the board that human capital is so foundational to the success of the strategy. And so I think really, really thinking bigger picture and really trying to understand this whole issue of talent management and human capital and framing it around the issues that a board worries about, which is strategy issues is key versus coming at it. Here, here are our latest engagement scores. That's not going to get the board excited. Yeah. Really bad news. And then it's going to get them not excited, but deeply worried. Yeah. Last question. I'll, we'll wrap things up here with this. I, I got reconnected to you through Tim Blakesley, who uh, works at the USC Executive uh, Marshall Executive Development Program. And uh, even though I did my MBA there, I'm not that familiar with the Executive Development Program. And of course, I've been talking with Tim. They're now a premier sponsor for our conference, the Talent Development Think Tank, and so excited to have them involved. Uh, can you just tell me a little bit more about the Executive Development Program and, and what you do there? Yeah, so I've been running a program called the, Your Leadership Journey for probably about a decade. So it's one of the uh, leadership offerings. It's designed to basically really help you understand who you are and what you can build upon as a leader. It has a 360 tool that I, I crafted. And then the content is all built around many of these foundational issues we talked earlier about in leadership that you need to be very good at in order to go to the next level as a leader. In terms of the USC Marshall School Executive, I mean, I think what makes that such a strong program is we're all dedicated to customization. Each of us really believes that each organization has unique leadership demands, unique cultural demands. And so we're kind of, uh, you know, that English word bespoke, we're really focusing on how do you make bespoke programs that are, that tackle real issues the organization is facing. And so we'll look at what do the leaders need to implement the next generation of strategies. And then we will back into that and create learning experiences. And then we're also, this is something Tim, I think, really uh, has emphasized greatly, which is that learning needs to occur over time. The idea of doing this a two-day or one-day, and then that's it, bye-bye. That's a very old model. It doesn't work well. 
And you really need to space the learning out with learning challenges between each program. Makes sense. And that's where I see a lot of hypo programs going and, and executive development programs going. And, and when I'm working with clients, we're putting together more journeys because you want that reinforcement. You want the reminders. You want people to stay together, the connections and the kind of that ongoing learning. And of course, I met Tim Blakesley uh, when I worked with him at BTS building custom experiential learning programs. So it's cool to see that you know, he's still in that field and that you guys are building you know, those custom bespoke programs to really align with companies and organizations and what they're actually trying to achieve. Yeah. And I think the great thing about USC is we're not welded to a particular pedagogy and methodology. So we're able to bring in lots of different learning experiences, depending on where the client's at and what they need to learn. And then, you know, given Tim's background, it's been a really wonderful. Very cool. Well, I'm glad we got reconnected and and got a chance to get you on. The book, again, is called The High Potentials Advantage. For anybody listening, Jay, who wants to grab a copy of that or maybe get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to go to do that? Uh, They can email me directly at j.conger, C-O-N-G-E-R, at cmc.edu. cmc.edu. Got it. Okay, cool. And uh, we'll put a link to the uh, USC Marshall Exec Ed program. And of course, I'm sure they can get your books on Amazon or anywhere else they buy books, right? They sure can. Excellent. Jay, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to come on and share some of your research, your experience, your wisdom. It's been really great for me. And I know it's been for our listeners as well. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. A real pleasure. Yeah, Lead well. Lead well. All right. Take care. If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. Inside, we have members from companies all over the world who are working on all different things in talent development and sharing what's been working, what's been not working, and answering each other's questions so we can all get our jobs done more effectively and be more successful in our careers. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Just head on over to tdtt.us slash community, and you can use code HOTSEAT for 25% off your subscription. That's tdtt.us slash community and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know and we'll see you there. Thanks for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you got value out of this show, please subscribe, leave a review and share with your colleagues and friends. We want to spread the word and add as much value to the talent development community as possible. And we need your help. As always, you can find more information and connect with me at talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Take care.